Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Hope you're enjoying the full-on summertime. It's hot here in LA, and hopefully you picked up our new book, The Best Investment Writing on Amazon, and took advantage of all the free books available for download last week. If you didn't, don't don't complain to me. Uh, they were available for five days. But today, we have a super special guest. He's a commodity trading advisor with more than two decades of investment experience. He's also won awards for achievement in math, has written two books, and is now the CEO, CIO of Emil Van Essen Managed Futures. Welcome to the show, Emil. Well, thank you for having me. You know, um, I have to say that um, the first thing that I thought of when we were having you on the podcast is if you were to mash together our two names, so Emil Faber... There is, and I, I polled people the other day in the office. I said, "Does anyone know who Emil Faber is? Does does that name ring a bell to you at all?" There is an Emil Faber. He's fictitious. He's a fictional character, but okay. po- podcast listeners, super super uh, gold star. If you can know who this is, he was the founder of Faber College in the movie Animal House. So if you look at the first scene, there's a statue of Emil Faber. And the best part is his quote on the statue is, knowledge is good. So <laughs> I thought that'd be just a funny start. Um, anyway, maybe that'll be the title of this podcast when Jeff puts it up. Knowledge is good. All right. So our podcast listeners um, may may not be familiar with you. They might be. But we usually start by asking our guests to give us a little background info. Um, so how about taking a minute or two and just tell us where you started, how you got to what you're uh, doing today? Well, I started uh, a lot like Warren Buffett, delivering papers when I was a kid. And uh, I used to invest my money in rare coins when I was like 13. And the guy who was the owner of the rare coin shop was a commodity trader. So he started teaching me how to trade commodities, but by the time I was 14, I was trading on his account. And by the time I went to high school, I was reading all the papers on commodities and everything. And that's kind of how I got started. And then uh, I knew what I wanted to do. And, you know, years later, I, I you know, studied math and all that kind of stuff. And uh, 21 years old, I started working for Prudential Beige Commodities. And, you know, went from there, eventually started my own shop and uh, developed some interesting programs for uh, commodity spread trading and things like that. Here I am now. You know, it just reminded me, Jeff, we we did a episode with a a great numismatist, uh, Van Simmons, and we still got to go down to Long Beach and I'm going to make my first investment in rare coins. So that's that's another episode and another another conversation. But okay, so. We, we've done about 50 podcast episodes and we've had a lot of chats with, you know, some trend followers and managed futures. And, w- and most people, when they think of the word CTA, which is commodity trading advisor, they think of trend following. 
But why don't, you know, for our listeners, just to get on the same page, why don't we talk a little bit about your trading style? You know, because a lot of people may just associate managed futures with, with one investment style, but that's not really the case. So why don't, why don't we get, get into just starting to talk a little bit about your framework for investing, how you think about markets, and, and what, you know, your, your particular uh, investment style is. Sure. So, you know, people got into trend following mostly because, you know, when things blow up, when things go crazy, trend followers make money. And it's sort of like the opposite of stock investors. Stock investors lose money when things go crazy and blow up. And, and you know, CTAs, trend followers, they make money. So, but there's not a lot of alpha generation. It's basically, you know, the assumption that things are going to trend and that's how they make money. But there's not that much alpha in that strategy. Um, there's some, but not a lot. So we looked at the term structure of commodities. And the term structure is like, well, you know what the first futures contract is. It has a price, let's say crude oil, you know, might be $48. But there's a price for every month going out in time, and that's the term structure. And you can trade the term structure, trade the differences between those months. Um, so that's calendar spreads. Um, so we trade the calendar spreads. And then the other thing is like relative value. So, you know, there's Brent crude oil and there's WTI, WTI being the U.S. one, Brent being the waterborne one, the rest of the world. And you can trade like relative value, trade those things against each other, buy one, sell the other, because you think one's a little over and underpriced. And, and that's what we do. And what I like about it is that the term structure is pushed around by different forces. Like in crude oil, for example, if the price of crude goes up, the hedgers come in and they sell the term structure a year out. But the trend followers will be buying it. So all of a sudden there's a big shift in the term structure just because these different participants, these big players, um, need to do their own business, like hedgers need to lock in the price or trend followers are trying to get on the upward movement. And it causes a lot of distortions in the term structure, and we can take advantage of that. And what I like is there's tons of alpha available. So when you get all these players moving the market around in the zones that they participate in, it creates some dislocations in the market. And all these create uh, alpha generating opportunities because we know that certain effects aren't likely to last. Um, another big one that, that we do is what we call roll ARB. So um, big players, when they roll their positions, they tend to, you know, they roll out of the front contract and they go into the next contract. So they got to sell one and buy another and they push the market. And we know when that's going to happen and we take advantage of it. So if we can, if, if we know that they're going to be selling the front month and buying the next one, then we know, you know, we can take advantage of that by doing it ahead of them. And then when they move the prices, we can profit from it. So there, there's a lot of, lot of alpha there to take advantage of. There's a, there's a lot in here we can drill down into. And let's, let's just take a step back because um, some of the listeners may, may or may not be familiar, that familiar with futures. But for example, you know, um, if you were just to go out and try to buy oil, you know, a lot of investors say, I, I want some exposure to oil. Well, there's no such thing really. You could go buy the spot, but there's these futures markets where, you know, whether it's every month or every quarter, 
all the way out for you know a number of months and years is that you can buy these contracts that give you exposure. And so some of the discussions we're having is is how these contracts relate to each other at different times. And there's also a lot of players, um, participants in the futures markets that aren't necessarily price sensitive. So we talk about people that have to hedge where you think of an airline that needs to hedge its fuel costs or a cereal company that needs to hedge its wheat or vice versa, et cetera. Uh, a couple things. So one, you started to talk a little bit about role ARB and in a way to kind of um, give some insight into podcast listeners to make this a very kind of real discussion. A lot of people that say they want to invest in commodities. And if you remember back to the early mid 2000s investors, everyone was super excited about commodities. One of the reasons because oil was going straight up and a lot of commodities oil was up above 100 bucks. Everyone wanted exposure to commodities and portfolio, but because you can't just go buy a bunch of commodities spot, you have to do it through futures, a little more nuanced. Why don't you talk a little bit about the kind of intricacies of an investment in, in just a broad-based commodities as, as kind of an instructive platform, and we can get a little deeper from there and talk about how kind of like a lot of these 1.0 commodity indices were very poorly designed and, and actually really benefited people, uh, people like you guys. So, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why, you know, commodities went up so much in the 2000s is everybody decided that they were going to, they wanted to have an investment in commodities. So commodities went from a product that people use, like oil, to an investment vehicle, and it really was never meant to be like that. So they came up with all these commodity indices, like Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, and then all these funds around that. And all of a sudden, everybody was investing in commodities through these indices that you could buy an ETF for or what have you. And the amount of investment in that went from $10 billion in 2000 to hundreds of billions by 2008. And that drove up the price of commodities because you had all these massive buyers pushing up the price of commodities. In this, in this world, everybody, you know, the primary investments are stocks and bonds. And the problem is in, around the world, these things are getting more and more correlated. And everybody needs some other investment. And that's why they got into commodities. And that's, that was the whole buildup of the, the, the commodity machine, the long only commodity funds. And, and we took advantage of these long only commodity funds. But as an investment, there's not a lot of op, like when you buy commodities, yeah, it's not correlated to stocks and bonds, but there's also not that much. It's just a lot of volatility with not a lot of gain to it. And that's where CTAs come in because, you know, we're better at playing the commodities not being correlated to stocks and bonds and being able to take advantage and generate alpha and better returns. Listeners, we often talk about this because we manage both obviously passive and active funds. And we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. But one of the dirty secrets of indexing is almost all of the indexes get front run. And there's academic papers on this. So if you're the S&P 500, there's, it's a massive, massive index, but there's not, it's very liquid. So there's not as much kind of slippage. It may be 20 or 40 basis points, but some indices, the Russell 2000 is a super famous one where people will simply screen for the stocks that are likely to go in because you know the rules, buy them a month ahead of time. And then of course, short the stuff that's probably coming out. And that's been a very profitable center um, for traders for, for many, many decades. But particularly the commodity indices, I've seen uh, reports on these kind of 1.0 indices where the slippage 
huge on some of these indexes from these just um, very naive role systems was on the order of three to four percent per year. And so, um, as you mentioned, now the good news is a lot of the providers are starting to develop a lot more dynamic or 2.0 versions of kind of the commodity indices that make a lot more sense than the first ones. But, uh, but again, a, a, a great source for people like uh, Emil to take advantage of. So, you know, so you put together a number of these sort of spread ideas. And so for investors, you know, a, a lot of it sounds a little bit like arbitrage you know, like a relative value sort of play. Um, why don't you talk about how you kind of, is, is this a sort of fundamental inputs where you're looking at, you know, your beliefs about certain markets and, you know, the fact that they may get too stretched or not? Uh, is it purely technical inputs based on price? How, 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 how's, the, how's the machine work? Well, I think it's very important in commodities that you have both, but most people don't use both. I think we're kind of unique in that way. But you have to understand the fundamentals because things change. I mean, look at the shale revolution in oil. It's changed the whole dynamic. And if you look at things like it was 10 years ago, you're going to get run out of town. You're going to lose a lot of money. Uh, Look at natural gas. I mean, they can produce it for half the price than they did years ago. So if you built a model on that, you would you would lose money. So we we do build our models which tell us, you know, how things the relative value moves around, how we can make money taking advantage of it. But we also look at the fundamentals and study it and make sure we understand how the big pieces are moving around um, so we don't get caught. Um, like you said, for example in Roll Arb the big players who are rolling are getting a little savvy now and they're changing the way they're doing things and there's not a, it's not as easy to take advantage of them. So you have to know that they're changing things. Otherwise, when the opportunity is gone, you don't want to keep trying to play the game and lose all your money um, after these guys have gotten savvy. You know, it's interesting and in talking about front running as well, I heard you on um, somewhere talk a little bit about uh, and I've, I've long thought about this idea and always wanted to kind of test it or put it into practice. But, um, the concept of you have a big pot of money that's also in trend following and the ability where most of the trend followers do the same thing, you know, in general, like it's not that complicated. You're buying what's going up and selling what's going down. They may have different systems and different timing, but in general, it's a pretty darn similar. Uh, sort of sort of system. You and I could probably write down some rules in, in 10 minutes on a napkin and get the majority of what, what most of these guys are doing. No offense to my trend following listeners, but that's kind of the beauty the, of, the, of the strategy too. But one of the things is, um, I, I heard you mention that a possible trading strategy as well on kind of the spread trading and thinking about is also thinking about when trend followers are all going to be entering a market. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And is that something you still implement or uh, or no longer trade as well? Yeah. So we definitely take advantage of the trend followers. So the long-term trend followers, like from a role standpoint, they all get, if there's a big move, they all end up getting on the same side of the position. They're all long crude or they're short gold or whatever they are. They're in their position. And then it comes time for the front month to expire and they have to roll. And we kind of know when they're going to do that. So they tend to be very methodical and mechanical in how they roll. And they're rolling as a group, like, you know, maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of positions. 
And they're what I would call a price taker, where they go in the market and execute the trade. They're not really trying to finesse it that much. And that creates a lot of price movement. And we know exactly, you know, when somebody's doing big trades and you know ahead of time what they're going to do, you can take advantage of it. Now, something that's a little trickier but also possible is if you know that, let's say you can build a model that essentially is sort of the middle ground of all the big trend followers, and you can say, okay, my model's getting close to triggering the buy, let's say. So let's say gold is going from a, a sell to a buy, and you know pretty soon all the trend followers, if it keeps moving up, are just going to jump on that bandwagon. You can get ahead of them, essentially front run their move into the market because you know if it moves up, it's going to start dominoing all their triggers to get in the market and you can make money off of that. And what what's the way that kind of is the easiest implementation? Because I've long thought about this topic and, you know, is, is it, do you ex- express it through straight up futures or through options? Um, are there kind of spread trades on that? Like what, what's the, what's the best way in general to kind of put that into practice? I would say futures. I mean, you could simply say when it gets close to the point at which I think the trend follower is going to get in, I'm let's, you have to assume, let's say, assuming they're all short and it's getting just to the edge of where you think it's going to start triggering all their signals, just buy it. And then, you know, if the market moves back down, then it's too far away, you get out. So you just, Essentially, you're paying a trend following yourself, but you got the added bonus that you're going to really make money off of their orders. You know, I look at it this way. If you, if you can ever get in a situation where you know that somebody's got to move a large amount of money and you can get in front of that movement of money, that's a good way to make money yourself by getting in front of large amounts of money moving through the market. Talked about a few different things here, but in general, you're kind of bread and butter, bread and butter spread trading. W- where does that fit into a portfolio? You know, it, I mean, it, it falls under this sort of active management. Um, I, I and I and I, I the thing that I imagine most. All right, put myself in an allocator's shoes. Uh, the big sort of takeaway for an allocator that that I, and I imagine you get this on a daily basis from some very uninformed big investors, I imagine they say, what is your risk management? Because thinking in terms of a lot of these positions, really everything comes down to how you build these trades. And sort of on, a, on an arbitrage level, you know, what is the maximum pain you can endure? Is there any sort of kind of rules of thumb that you guys implement on how you structure the portfolio that says, hey, look, we're, you know, we're going to build this spread trade, but if it blows out to XYZ, we're just out. Or is there some sort of like dynamic position sizing that it's so small that you're actually pyramiding into that? What's what's kind of how do you think about the money management side? Because uh, in many ways that's that's more important for a lot of systems than just straight up buy and sell rules. Well, the, certainly the stuff we do is something you don't want to try at home. Spread commodity spreads are very risky instruments, and they ha- they're very volatile. Like they can go from you know sort of the you know, very little volatility to being super high volatile in a day or two. So it's dangerous. The way we mitigate risk is we diversify. So we try to keep our money in sort of very across the commodity sectors and keep it spread around so that no one product, if it did something radical against us, can really hurt us. Now, from the allocator standpoint, the thing we 
add for them is we general, generate a lot of alpha that's not correlated to what they do. So we actually tend to be negatively correlated to the trend followers. So, you know, when the trend followers get beaten up in a choppy market, that's actually when we do our best. And anybody sort of investing 101, if you can if you add something to your portfolio that's just like if you add a stock to a stock portfolio and it's correlated, you gain very, very little. But if you can add something that has zero or negative correlation, you know, the, the, your portfolio goes way up in sort of risk-adjusted returns. So they gain a lot by investing with us because we have no correlation to any of the other investments. And I imagine part of the not doing it at home is not necessarily just the the – challenge of putting on the spread trades but the the challenge of you have to trade enough of these um so that each one only has a small percent of overall exposure to the book right so for the challenge for the 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 small at home investors probably you know just because of the futures and options they can't put on that enough trades because i imagine you guys got to have at any one point you know probably dozens of different trades on is that right or do you guys concentrate in just a few or is it spread across 100 markets like how do we we trade a bunch of different sectors we probably have three to five themes at any one time and then each theme might have um, many different positions within it so it is kind of complicated the sizing of the position is complicated to understand the risk you also have to understand the potential risk you know if you're getting into an area where you know, there could be an explosion in volatility, like grains in the summer or like natural gas in the winter. You kind of have to understand all these effects. So it, it's, it can get complicated. You know, it's interesting because, you know, as you look through Emil's performance, it's one of the rare strategies that would have had an up year in both 2008 and 2009. You can look across almost any market and, you know, almost all of them, it was either one or the other. It just got decimated. But it's, but, but, but then again, there's a couple random years after where it had negative performance. So it's, it's kind of an interesting allocation that doesn't really, like you mentioned, correlate to, to anything else. You mentioned a couple different themes um, just now. Are there any you can talk about or we kind of already touched on them or is there anything that's cu- kind of currently, and I don't know the extent you can talk about the current positions or themes, but is there anything that you could talk about? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's, there's always little things that are going on. Like, for example, there's been some uh, bit of a shortage recently in gasoline. And so gasoline's been running up against some, you know, uh, against the price of crude. So we call that a crack spread when you trade gasoline against crude oil. And they've gotten to really high levels, and we think they're going to come down. So we've sold some of those. Um, there's also there was some talk about the grains. You know, it's the summer growing season. There was some worry that the heat was going to, you know, cause a problem, but it hasn't. So. You know, we're always playing the weather from that standpoint. In the energy markets, uh, it's very interesting dynamic right now because, for example, in net gas, there's this massive increase in production, but there's also a massive increase in demand from, you know, uh, different sources. So we're, we're, we're playing a lot of these different themes. Uh, you know, we also look at the metals and the relative value of like things like platinum and palladium versus gold and silver. You know, we look at the, um, the things like the, the value between Brent and WTI now that, uh, U.S., uh, U.S., 
you know, producers are exporting their crude, um, that becomes relevant. So there's, there's a few different themes that we're working on right now. And one of the cool parts of, you know, having talked with you a little bit, but also doing the research on y'all's firm is that it seems like you're continually doing research, you know, and I, I think a challenge for a lot of quantitative managers is they say, look, this is my system and I'm done. But, but, you know, we talk a lot where markets can often structurally change over the years. You know, example in the equity space is the huge influx of people, uh, companies using their cash flows for buybacks instead of dividends, which really goes back to a structural break in the 1980s. And now there's these hundreds of billions of dollars of funds that focus only on dividends. And it's a huge mistake in our, in our opinion. And so, what um what do you, what are you kind of guys thinking about now? I mean, like if you look around the universe, think of new ideas and systems and things you're working on. Is there anything get, that gets you excited? Or are you guys starting to trade uh, Bitcoin and uh, anything else weird? Or is, what, is there any sort of research that you guys are thinking on uh, uh, these slow summer days? Well, I mean, we we've been doing a lot of work on like different uh, things in fundamental commodities. But also in the equity sector, actually, I kind of like some of these dividend stocks, but for a different reason, I think uh, you mentioned. I kind of think that the um, the shale plays are going to you know, keep growing for the next several years, and I think it creates a lot of opportunity. And I think some of these, like MLPs, are paying out huge dividends, but I think they're also going to grow, and um, I think provide a tremendous opportunity for, you know, for people. Now that's, I just do that for myself because that's not what we do in our firm, but I really like that. But why don't we expand on that? You know, talk about oil a little bit because a lot of investors, when they think commodities, it's, it's oil. And if you look at a lot of the gen one commodity indices, it's like 70% energy is the index. So you're basically trading oil. You know, what's your perspective? I mean, there's there's been a pretty crazy last 10 years in the energy space with, you know, oil well over 100 bucks and then crashing back down because of this revolution. What give give us just a couple comments from somebody who's kind of in the in, in that world. Uh what's what's your thoughts on oil in general and this and this kind of shale revolution? So, I think I think the original drive to 140 something dollars was really a case of long-only commodity funds investing tens of billions of dollars as an investment in crude oil and other commodities. So we drove the price too high, and, and as the price was way too high, way above the cost of production, more money got spent on developing oil and things like that. And as soon as that happens, and it takes years for these projects to take hold, but once they do, we had way too much oil. So the price comes crashing back down. And so where we stand right now is we're, there, there is overproduction still. I mean, OPEC had their agreement, you know, and demand is good for oil. So oil demand is going up like a million and a half barrels a day every year. But the shale guys are, are essentially growing by the same amount. The reason, the big thing that's happening now is there's a technology revolution going on in all oil drilling. And the cost of finding and developing oil is, has just collapsed in price. So there's a lot of projects now that are profitable at $40 a barrel. So that's why the price is here. And this is why a lot of this stuff's getting developed. Now, they say, I mean, it seems like in a couple of years, 
prices may need to go up because the big projects, the deep sea, the stuff that's um, deep water drilling, some of these multi-year projects, when the prices collapsed in 15, 16, you know, none of that stuff got approved, no no new projects. So the long-term projects, the long cycle projects, the ones that they were starting in 14 are getting going now. And and so that's, you know, keeping us in the oil, but nothing got approved in 16 and 17 or not much anyway. And that means probably in a couple of years, there's not going to be any big projects coming on stream or very few, less than normal. And there might be another shortage of oil and push the price up. But I think the days of like $80 oil, that's a long way away because, you know, just technologically, the oil they are developing is is all has like $40 less break-evens. Interesting. We have a little wheat farm in western Kansas, and there's been a, a bunch of people that have found oil in the region, and I've all long wondered, out of just curiosity, I don't even really care, but just to, to see if there's anything underneath. So we may be exploring if, if oil ever uh, ticks up a little bit. More for fun than anything else. Although my brother just b- bought a tractor, he he texted me this weekend, which uh, is is going to be fun to go drive around on. Um, so you know, you kind of have a more touch in touch with this than I do. What what's the perspective now from professional investors that you talk to on a consistent basis? Because I, I I used to go to a lot of the professional conferences, institutional conferences, and it's kind of humorous in many ways to watch the themes come in and out of favor you know like you mentioned commodities were super popular in the mid 2000 and then it was the bricks and then after 2008 it was uh tactical strategies and tail risk and now it seems like a simply just a massive massive shift to purely passive investing and pays play, paying as little as possible what's kind of your perspective on conversations in the institutional community um particularly with a focus on commodities in general are are all of the managers just puking out their commodities exposure and saying that was a dumb move or are they kind of shifting their thinking what's what's kind of the general perspective there well that's what's happened so generally if i look over the last 20 years when stocks start going up and up over a period of years like they have then there's a certain point at which sort of most people gravitate towards uh, more and more stock investing, more and more equities in their portfolios. So they forget that stocks have their down periods. And so hedge funds get more into equities and, you know, and then all of a sudden stocks blow up, have a big down correction or, or bear market. And then everybody goes, oh, Geez, we need uh, we need some alternatives here. We need something that's not correlated to our stock portfolio, and then they get into CTAs and hedge funds and other things. And so we're in sort of that tail end of the equity move, and everybody feels um, like they're resting well with their equity portfolio. And then I think there's going to be a down move, and then you know with correlations to me in the world, correlations are getting higher and higher on the equity side. You can't get any diversification. And I think commodities are the one area where there is diversification, where commodities just don't act at all like um, like stocks. So I think when you get that bear market, then then you'll see the, the big shift back into commodities like we did, you know, 10 years ago. There's a lot of things, kind of coincident sentiment indicators you see at various turning points in markets where you look around and, and kind of notice things like you notice Harvard 
has been shifting huge, major shift. One of the most impressive active managers of the past century, largely due to a number of factors, but shifting their portfolio to a much more passive investment. So we saw the other day that they were selling their, I don't know if it was a goat farm or, or cattle farm in New Zealand, but like all these other sort of commodity and, and real asset investments. And But you see that. I mean, you see after a number of down years for commodities in general is long only, um, you know, a lot of these institutions throwing up their hands and saying, well, that was stupid. I can't believe we got sucked into that. We'll never invest in this again. And that sets the stage, of course, for, for the next kind of big run. What Are there any other sort of like if you look around at markets, you know, commodities or anything else, any other big kind of long-term opportunities that, you know, you think are particularly uh, interesting in general? Yeah. So, um, well, I do think crude in the next couple of years, you know, can't sustain prices much less than $50. So I think anything in the mid to low 40s is a good buy. But like I look at something like platinum. I mean, platinum has run a deficit in the last four years, a uh, production deficit. Uh, the price is you know, in the 900s, but it's dipped down into the 800s. And and essentially, it's below the cost of uh, production. So gold costs, gold costs less to produce, but gold is over $300 more than platinum. So you get platinum that these guys are breaking even or losing money on all their mines, and they're not spending any CapEx to develop anything new, and the mines are getting older. And yet, demand is probably steadier going up. And so how long can that sustain itself? You know, a, a year, two years, but eventually it has to go up. It's kind of like a, a no-brainer. People are worried maybe that the main use of a platinum is in catalytic converters for diesel engines, and people are a little worried that maybe with all this problem with you know, the uh, diesel engines that maybe they might get hurt. But other than that, you know, at this price, they just can't um, sustain the mining of platinum. So it's got to go up. So there's things like that that are, I think, it's a waiting game, but it's also kind of a no-brainer where, you know, just supply-demand is just not going to work at these prices. Is, is, and so you mentioned gold. Is, is that an area that on a fundamental or sort of even on the, on the spread trading world, like, do you, do you think about gold, you know, in particular, does it look interesting right now? Is it something that you don't really have a strong opinion on? Any, any general thoughts there now? I mean, it, it's, it's funny because you talk about sentiment and what comes in and out of favor and almost every social media story these days is about cryptocurrencies and you know is is there a shift in sort of sentiment from older to a younger generation of of kind of how, how do you think about gold in general is in any any main thoughts well gold and cryptocurrencies are the same you know in the same realm let's say uh maybe gold is the older generation and cryptocurrencies is the new one but essentially there's some people who want to take their money out of traditional investments and want it portable or what have you. And the world's investment pool is so large right now, you know, a hundred trillion plus that it only takes a very small amount of that total pool to go into these to make them skyrocket. I mean, if, if 1% of the global investment pool went into gold right, you know, now it could cause, you know, a massive increase in price. And so you could easily have squeeze plays in both, you know, crude, or sorry, gold and the cryptocurrencies. And I, I'm also a little suspect of, 
you know, all the technological changes, especially in equities trading and everything that's gone on in terms of QE and, you know, this big global experiment by central banks. And knowing that everything is now controlled by computers, I think, you know, the, the flash crash in 2010, we could have something way bigger than that in the future. And if that's the case, what happens to gold? And, you know, uh, gold could, you know, now that you can get gold through GLD and these uh, ETFs, what if, uh, what if like a million people click on that because something catastrophic is happening? I mean, you could see gold go up $1,000 in one day, and conceivably, because, you know, you could put a squeeze on in the market. You know, so that that's kind of goes back to the talking about front-running the trend followers. I mean, another concept here is trying to identify somewhat illiquid markets that have the potential for big money to get interested and come in and kind of distort the the demand to where the, the price moves can be really strong. It's an interesting way to think about um, not just investing, but, but potential trends in the future where you're saying, look, you know, trying to identify markets that you know, have the potential to have these really, really big moves and positioning ahead of that. I, that's interesting. Um, totally unrelated. And I, I just want to bring this up because I asked yesterday, I, I did a Twitter poll and, and under this theme of passive investing, because it, it's, it's curiosity to me, um, where at some point a lot of investing comes back to common sense. So I add, I asked people three questions. I said, what percentage of you, do you own U.S. stocks currently? And it was like 90% people did. And then I said, would you own, and in the, the long-term PE ratio, and we're not going to even get into that, the pros and cons of that, but we, we use it uh, with, with listeners. We've long talked about the, the Schiller Cape ratio. It's around 30 right now, which is expensive, but not terrible, um, not, uh, not, not bubble. But I said, would you continue to own U.S. stocks if they hit a valuation of 50, which is the highest we've ever seen in the U.S. I think it hit 48 in the, in the dot-com bubble. And over two, I think it was two-thirds said they would still continue to own stocks, where there is no probable future return on that investment. You know, in a historical speaking, that future return is probably negative. And then I said, would you continue to own stocks if they held, if they had a P, long-term P ratio of 100, which is what, and we're talking the S&P, not just Amazon, it, but 100, and this is what Japan hit in the largest equity bubble we've ever seen back to the, the 1980s, and it was like 30 or 40% said they'd still continue to own stocks, even if they traded at a P ratio of 100. So you got a lot of players in this world that are like kind of, we were talking about commodity markets earlier, that are, that are not necessarily price sensitive. And I, that, that creates a lot of opportunities. Oh, but you they know, are. I think in your world... They just say they're not. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, they'll yeah. pay a 50 PE and they'll pay a 100 PE and look at Amazon and Netflix and all this. But if you get to those ridiculous valuations and then margin usage gets to more and more record highs and things like that, and then when things turn, you see everybody go, oh, no, now what? And then there's the race for the exits, and then everybody who convinced themselves it would never go down starts getting scared. And, you know, that's the whole market cycle. I mean, look what happened in real estate. Everybody thought real estate could never go down, and then 2008 happened. So I think you're going to see some ugliness in this cycle. I'm not sure when it's going to happen, but for sure we're in the late innings of, of this bull market. 
you know, it's it's interesting. Everything is kind of old and new again as you watch these cycles. And it appears in different places, of course. We talk a lot about investment bubbles, have written some papers on it. And you see some kind of coincident indicators like, you know, the, the Canadian real estate has just been bananas. and But, of course, you see Tony Robbins and Pitbull doing real estate seminars in Toronto and things like that you only see when, when people start to behave crazy. So you, you've had a couple decade career. Where have you seen most investors make kind of their biggest mistakes, um, particularly with the, with the lens towards, you know, your world of managed futures, spread trading, commodities? What's kind of the basic mistakes or biggest mistakes you've seen, not just individuals, but also institutions make over the last uh, two decades? Well, they jump on the bandwagon. So, you know, prices get high and they, they want to be, they want to be in on it. So stocks are high. They got to get more into stocks. If commodities are high, they want to get more into commodities. And then when things flush out and hit the lows, then they're like, you know, they don't want to be long anymore. So they are cheap and they, they, you know, people always say, you know, I want to buy good value and things, but they don't. And as a group, you see this massive boomer bust thing and, and investors are really bad for that. They, they just, they want it to get, get in on the thing that's going up and get out of the thing that's going down. And sometimes, you know, that's fine if you're a trend follower and you have a sort of a methodology that you follow mechanically and you know that that's tended to work over decades, that's fine. But other than that, I mean, people you know, people get in on these bubbles and, and then they get flushed out. And I think that's the biggest mistake people make. I would say now too, I mean, there's, there's a real changing environment in terms of, like I said, electronic trading. You know, if you look at the flash crash in 2010 and you think how much more uh, things are controlled by computers now than they were in 2010. And 2010 was based on nothing, like virtually nothing. What happens when there's a real event that happens? And what happens when the computers all pull their orders at the same time everybody's trying to sell? I mean, things could happen that you'd never even envisioned. So people should be careful. I was thinking about writing an article about that. And, you know, the way that most money managers will talk about, particularly if they're underperforming or if an asset class is doing poorly, is they'll write a paper and they'll say, we've seen this before. You know, stocks have underperformed, foreign stocks have underperformed, U.S. stocks or whatever for X period. And this has happened before and try to calm their investors. But one of the things we often think about is we say, well, look, at some point, something is coming that we haven't seen before, <laughs> you know, where the, the definition of drawdown is the largest one will always be in your future. And so, you know, as we talk about quantitative systems, I think uh, Cliff Hasness has a great quote where he says, you know, we take a look at a lot of the historical simulations and performance, but we say, we'll take a look at the drawdown number and double it. Because at some point, something will happen that that is far worse than what we've seen before. And I think, the importance of history, of course, is to have some expectations, but also to realize, hey, that's just the base case, and you know things could certainly get worse. In, in commodity spreads, this is a common occurrence, and we've actually done testing on things that have exceeded the 30-year history, so something that has gone beyond the 30-year history, so outside of the realm of, of modern history. And we saw like 200 cases in commodity spreads like that. And we would measure how far beyond history it went. And we saw things that would, 
you know, if you, let's say you took the last 10 year range and you called that X, we've seen things that exceeded the historical high by 10 times the 10 year range, like, like astronomical amounts. And it happens all the time. And we, we try to build a, um, a model on how to profit from things when they just blow out and blow everybody out. And how can you make money off of that? That's interesting. And so is the kind of solution that one, keep the, keep the bet small in the first place, but when those extreme events occur to, to come in as well, you know, I mean, it, it, I think the classic example that we can all remember that in the younger podcast listeners may or may not be familiar with, but long-term capital, you know, in the, in the, certainly in the late nineties, putting on a lot of the relative value trades, but I think they were also leveraged like 70 to one or something. So there's another lesson there. And, and what's the famous book on that? Is it when genius failed? I think, but a, a great book. Yeah. We'll add it to the show notes. I can't remember, but, but, but Emil, any, any comments or thoughts there? I mean, that that's seems like a ripe opportunity, but also kind of hard to, hard to quantify. But I guess, I guess if you just simply say, look at if, if it ever hits the fan at five or 10 X, we'll, we'll put on these trades in the opposite direction. Yeah, and and the whole thing about long-term capital management is it, it it's based on assumption that, that everything happens in a normal orderly fashion. And the fact is is if if uh if people think a price of 10 is too high and it goes to 11 and 12 and 13 so they sell more and more and more like on a relative value, then what happens when it goes to 20? Well, I'll tell you, when it goes to 20, it goes to 30 because all the people who got in between 10 and 20 get blown out and have to buy back and then it goes to 30. So these things are not normally distributed as people would say. They have, they have big tails and they do way more wild things than you would expect, especially when you're talking about relative value plays. And you should expect the unexpected. I mean, you should look for the fact that what you see is the normal historical range, you know, things are going to go way outside. And when they do, they tend to go way beyond it. And, and how you take advantage is when everybody gets blown out, let's say something's going up and up and people are selling it, when everybody gets blown out, so the people who thought it was too high, when they get forced out of the market, then it's time to sell, but only a little bit. <laughs> you know, don't, yeah. don't overdo it because, you know, you never know how many, like I said, in most cases when we tested it, they only went to, you know, one or two times the 10 year range, but we've seen situations where it went 10 times, like just absurd numbers. And so you, um, you know, you just got to be careful, I guess. One curiosity for a lot of people, you know, you talk to the value guys and Buffett, he's like, I was born a value investor. Some people in Seth Klarman, he's like, it's just, you know, inoculated. There are certain people that just tend towards a certain style. Like how, how'd you, eventually kind of settle on developing this style? Was it something that you had a mentor that in the early days of Prudential or whatever that kind of taught you this type of trading? Did you develop it kind of gravitate totally on your own? Like, how'd you end up as a spread trader? Well, it, it happened because of all this money moving into long-only long, long only commodity funds. And I realized hmm. this created a, a an arbitrage opportunity with the role. So I started out just doing role arb you know, over 10 years ago 
you know, taking advantage of that. But then I started realizing that there's tremendous opportunities in commodity spreads. And we started looking at all different angles and just developing them. And um, But it all started with Rollar. I just knew that everybody, all these guys were rolling their positions at the same time. And it was kind of, I don't know about easy money, but, you know, it was very predictable what the markets were going to do. And uh, we were sort of an early adopter, so um, we were able to make some decent money off of that. There's a, I'm blanking on this. It's early in the morning. We had our, our, our book happy hour last night, so I'm a, little, I'm a little cloudy. But there was a, there was a great fictional book about uh, a rebalance trade that was about, I think, Japanese equities. Maybe it was Ben Mesrick. Um, Jeff, ring a bell. Emil, does that ring a bell? No. I'll Google it and add it to the show notes. But it's a fun book. It's fictional. And it talks about, it kind of puts a, wraps a story around this, this, this topic that we're kind of talking about. Um, one or two more questions because we're going to have to let you go. I'd love to, love to keep you all day because this is a fascinating area. We haven't really talked about that much on the podcast. Um, what's been the most memorable trade for you over the past two decades? It can be good. It can be bad. It can be painful, whatever it may be. We ask all of our guests this. Oh. Is there anything that comes to mind as the most memorable trade over your last two decades? Okay. So I had a situation. This is a bad trade <laughs> where I was short. Uh, That's the best type. That's every, everyone loves talking about the best one. It's, it's a little cathartic. Like I feel like it's like a, almost a little of a therapy session here. Yeah. So I was short a bunch of cattle options, a large number. And on the last, now the way cattle works is the last day of the month was the expiry of the option. And then the, the, the next day is first notice day. And then position limits go down. And I had a big position, like 2,000. So on the last hour of the last day, when I thought the options were going to expire worthless, they blast through my strike price, and I, I get assigned. I'm short these options, and I get assigned on 2,000 you know, of these, uh, I'm sure 2,000 cattle contracts. But first notice day is the next day. And I can't cover them because it just all happens in the last hour. And so first notice day, position limits go down to 200 from 2000. So now I'm 10 times the exchange position limits and I have the, you know, the CFTC calling me and I'm like, but, but here's the, something happened in the cattle market at the exact same time as that happened. And the market was limit up on, on the Monday. So it's first notice day. I get exercised in the last hour of trading and now it's up limit and I got 10 times the position limit and I can't get out. It then goes up limit the next day and the next day. <laughs> oh, my palms are sweating listening to this. Seven days. It went, never done that <laughs> oh, in history. Seven days it went up limit. We eventually it started trading again and we exited the position. And, you know, I was doing this for a customer and we had made a lot of money for the customer, but we gave a lot back on that trade. It was, it was just like a horrendous situation. But the funny thing is, I said to my partner at the time, I said, this is, this price of cattle is ridiculous. Let's just, let's just sell some cattle before we go home for Christmas. And just, you know, just in our personal accounts. Now we're out of this whole debacle. Let's just, and mad cow hit and the price of cattle collapsed and we made a fortune. 
<laughs> so that's well, at least there's a happy ending. I, I, I love it. There's, there's, uh, my co-host Jeff's ears start perking up anytime anyone talks about options. So he was, he was getting excited listening to that story. All right. So, you know, this is a challenging, a lot of these strategies require, I think, a lot of deep knowledge of markets, but let's say there's people that are listening and they want to start to learn more. Are there any resources? I mean, I remember in my younger days, uh, buying the yearly, CRB commodity yearbook. I think it was probably because Jim Rogers was talking about it and, you know, used to buy those and pour through the, the CRB. What, what are some resources for someone who in general just wants to become educated, learn a little bit more about your world? Are there websites, books, podcasts, anything you think might be uh, of interest? Yeah. I mean, there's books, but I, most of the ones I've read, um, and commodities are not that good. So I'm trying to think now of, of books that I think are good. On the equity side, I like all the ones on factor-based investing. I think they're excellent. Um, I think you got to, like, I, What Works on Wall Street by O'Shaughnessy, you know, this kind of thing, because I think an investor can do very well if he just uses the science of value investing, let's say, you know, sort of like what Buffett does, but just, just play it by the numbers. I, I don't think you need an index or anything like that, and I think you can routinely outperform the market. On the commodity side, I think it's it's a little bit tricky, although I do think if you buy and hold and do your homework and don't overplay it. Like, like I said, in platinum, we did our homework. We know it's underpriced. You know, whenever it gets like 850 or below, we buy it and that kind of thing. You can, you know, any investor can do that, but you just got to do your homework on it. And, you know, I don't know too many good books in the area. I mean, I think I've gone through them all. You know, there's all the classic trading books like Reminiscence of a Stock Operator and stuff like that. Uh, you know, in the uh, the books on you know top traders, Jack Schwager yeah. wrote a couple of books. I, I love those, but a lot of the ones that teach you to trade commodity spreads just kind of make me shake my head. So I'm not not too happy. With them. <laughs> well, that's a, there's no no easy answer certainly in markets, but we we may be getting a bunch of interns starting to email you say we want to learn we want to learn from you. Emil, this was a lot of fun. I would I would love to keep you forever. Um if people want to follow you, if they want to learn more about you, what you're up to, uh what what are the best places to go? Where where do they look? Well, I mean, we have a website, but it doesn't really allow you to sign up because we're uh you know, for accredited investors. But if anybody wants to call me uh or email me, we'll be happy to sort of, you know, find a way, put you on our distribution list, that kind of thing. Emil at emilvanessen.com is my email. And um, anybody can message me there. You just, you just asked for it. You better, you better clean out your inbox. Um, Emil, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. Listeners, um, it's been a lot of fun. Um, thanks for taking the time to listen. Uh, we always welcome feedback. Questions in the mailbag at feedback at the com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfaber.com podcasts. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you're enjoying it, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. 
the longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 